0: Welcome this morning to Faith. Hey, great to have everybody here. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest, we thank you especially for being with us today. Uh, we are in our uh, acts, uh, series on the family And I hope you're enjoying that and growing together in your homes and your families. Let me just remind you of one thing. We talked about going to Lieber next week, but they're still on lockdown. So it's actually, we found out Friday, they're not going to be able to open on Father's Day. So it will be uh, probably sometime in July. So you're stuck with me again next week right here. But uh, we'll have a dad fest and a great time talking to dads and fathers next Sunday morning as well. Uh, take your Bibles out and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning, Deuteronomy 6 and uh, verse number 6. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home. And when you walk down along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up and tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads, and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We are talking about how we raise the next generation to come up and know the Lord and follow the Lord. How do we reach our children? How do we disciple our children? Well, we've got a real good guideline right here in Deuteronomy 6. Talk about it, teach it, put it in your heart, live it out in front of them. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. You are such an awesome, wonderful God, and we thank you for your sweet presence in the house today. And, and we just pray, Lord, that you'll open up our minds, our eyes, to receive what you have for us. May your Holy Spirit tell us what we need to learn, and may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We thank you, God. And so we uh, help me as I preach. I need you, God. We ask you in your holy, mighty name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, tell them they look marvelous today, and then you may be seated. There's a Chinese proverb that says, "What well, one generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. One generation plants the seed, another gets the shade of that tree of the seed that was planted. And so the thing that we're going to wrestle with this morning a little bit is, is what kind of seeds are we planting in the life of our kids what are we doing to train and teach and raise up the next generation? How many would admit that our nation's kind of in a mess? We are in a moral decline, a spiritual decline. A, there, there, there's just a, a crazy wild time in America today. So it goes back to what kind of seeds are we planting? And the answer won't be found through humanistic philosophies, uh, uh, things of that nature. The answer's only gonna be found in the word of God. What does God's word say about how we can take what we have in Christ and sustain it to the next generation and the next, gen- I mean, God's a generational God. He's not just concerned about us here and now. He's talking about our sons and daughters and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren that the word of God perpetuates from generation to generation. So what kind of seeds are we planting in their lives today? What's happening around us, you can't, and I will tell you, this Bible tells you, I just read to you, the primary responsibility is mom and dads. You can't give it to somebody else to do it. You can't count on the schools to do it. We have a marvelous Christian school, faith Christian school right here, and, and, but all we can come along is come alongside of mom and dad and reinforce what they're already doing at home and help in discipling your kids. Uh, you can't count on television to do it. How many know that? If they're raising your kids, you're in serious trouble. You, you can't count on their peers to do it because the influences all around them are often very, very negative and there's enticements and temptations out there to to not follow and serve the Lord. You can't even count on the church to do it. Sometimes we think we just bring them to church and bring them with us and they sit in here and hear the word that that's enough. No, it says parents, moms and dads, teach your children when they get up. Teach them when they walk during the day. Teach them when they go to bed at night. We're not there at night. We're not there in the middle of the day. We're not with them all the time. It is mom and dad's primary responsibility to raise their children in the way they should go. So how does that look in how do we do that? Well, Psalm 127, verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. That's kind of been our key scripture throughout this entire series. But it goes on to say in verse number four, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. And so an arrow has to be directed or has to be aimed. You just don't let it go and swing it around and shoot it at random, you'll hurt somebody. But uh, so we've got to aim our arrow towards the target. And we want to aim our sons and daughters and our teenagers and our children back to the Lord Jesus Christ so they they might know him. And it's got to start very early in their life and so through training and teaching and directing your kids they will come to know Jesus Christ. Now Judges 2 and verse 10 is probably one of the sadder verses in the Bible and it says after that the whole generation that had been gathered to their fathers another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. Now, I want you to set this in context. The book of Judges immediately follows the book of Joshua. So the the, the writer of Judges is saying that Joshua's generation died off. It says after they went to be with their fathers. Joshua's generation died off. The generation following Joshua was the generation of the Judges. The Judges was a chaotic, crazy, evil time when Israel began to turn back to idolatry. And every time they turned into idolatry, God would allow these opposing armies to come in and bring them back into captivity. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do with your, this generation today. They wanna to put them in bondage, in captivity, and not know the freedom that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God would raise up a judge, and a judge would come along, and he would lead a victory, and they would be free for a while, but then all of a sudden they turn back to bondage again. Now, it is amazing, Joshua's generation is the generation that crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. So they had the Ark of the Covenant, they get ready to walk in the river, and God stops the flow of the river, and they all pass through on dry ground with the Ark of the Covenant leading the way. When they get across into the promised land, the first city they come to is Jericho. What do they do with Jericho? They march around the city seven times on the seventh day and on the last day they gave out a shout and God comes and crushes that city underneath his powerful hand and God gives Israel a mighty victory. And then victory after victory, Joshua's armies begin to one by one take over the promised land of Israel. But he said the very next generation, after that generation died, the next generation growing up did not know God think about it they saw the miracles they were in the camps they knew but they they somehow their parents did not instill to them the things of God the things they experienced in their taking the land was not passed on to the next generation this generation and judges their grandfather was a guy by the name of Moses What's Moses do? He, he confronts Pharaoh, uh, God sends plague after plague, and the Bible says by God's mighty hand he brings them out of Egypt. They also cross the Red Sea on dry ground and Moses holds up his rod and those two million people walk across on dry ground. Moses is called to go up and he says, I want you to go up into the mountain and there I'm gonna give you the law and so he goes up to Mount Sinai and on Mount Sinai, God gives him Deuteronomy uh, along with everything else. Deuteronomy chapter six, what did I just read to you? Teach your children, instruct your kids when they lie down, when they get up, when they walk, whatever they do, you, it's your mom and dad's responsibility to instill that into your children. No one else will do it for you. And yet, two generations later, they'd already forgotten God's word. And the next generation, it says, grew up and did not know the Lord. Wow. Amazing. Go back to Joshua 2. Let's look at it again, look at it for just a moment and I want you to see verse 11. Let's continue in this story. It says in verse 10, they grew up and did not know God. Verse number 11. And when we heard of it, uh, uh, Judges, Judges chapter two and verse number 11. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now this is the generation, the grandchildren of Moses, the children of Joshua, and they grew up and began to serve all the idols around them. And kind of the theme verse of the book of, of Judges, you'll see it again and again, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So they're making their own laws, there's chaos, they're idol worshiping and there's no morality and they're doing that which is right in their own eyes. And the same patterns repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. Whenever a generation of parents neglect to plant those seeds of godliness in their children to provide that shade tree for the next generation, children will suffer spiritual famine as a result. And this is what you see happening in Israel's history. So let's go back to God's plan. Let's go back to Deuteronomy and uh, look at uh, chapter six again and let's look at verse number six. How do we plant godly seeds? How do we sustain God generationally from generation? How do we raise our kids up to health? healthy Christian families and homes? Number one, the Bible says you've got to be committed to follow the Lord. Look at verse number six. Let me read it to you again. These commandments that I give you today are to be written upon your hearts. He says you have got to get the word of God not in your heads, not in your brains. You've got to internalize it and make it a vital part of your heart and life. Get the word of God deep down in your hearts. We have got to be committed to the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in our homes, in our lives, in our family, in everything we do. He has got to be preeminent above everything else in our lives we got to be committed to him. How can we teach the next generation to follow God if we ourselves are not fully committed to serving the Lord? If we ourselves don't have a hunger after God? If we're not living and serving him? You see, a lot of people, they say yes with their lips, but it never makes it to their heart. And they are simply making lip service to God. Lifestyle says, My entire life revolves around my new owner of my life. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say, like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. He is my life. He is my all. He is my everything. But we say, For me to live is my job. For me to live is this hobby. For me to live is do this or that or this or that. And it's not wrong to do other things, but I want to tell you, Christ must be center. He must be your Lord and Savior and the owner of every step of your walk and of your life. And when we have that kind of commitment, that translates then to the our kids, and the next generation. Joshua put it this way, the generation that had just died, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now you can't just say, as for my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. It starts with, as for me and my house. Am I, as the father or the mother, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his lordship in every aspect of my life? What example are you leaving for your kids to follow? Is Christ at the center? Or do you have a temper? Do you get angry? Mad, yell and scream in the house when things don't go right or go wrong, or whatever the case may be. do you say hurtful words to your kids or to your spouse or to someone else, and do they hear the gossip and the garbage and all the evil just flow out of your mouth? What are your kids hearing in the home on a regular basis? Do you have lustful actions and is your television set uh, on stations and shows that you should not be watching in front of your kids? What are you viewing at night? What are you watching at night? What are you allowing to come into? Your house? Mm. What about your habits? You bring them to church and say one thing, but you have these little secrets and these habits that enslave you. And, and what, what, what happens is these habits and the temper and the unforgiveness and the hurtful words, they derail all the instruction you're trying to give them. So you can talk to your blue in the face, but if you're saying one thing and live another, your kids are going to gag your kids. They want to puke that out. And then we wonder why our kids get away from the Lord and why they don't serve God. And we say, well, we brought them to church on Sundays and we lived terrible the rest of the week. And our home was always a mess and in turmoil because Christ wasn't at the center. If we're going to reach the next generation and plant seeds that will change their life, we have got to be committed ourselves to making Christ central and Lord. And then once we live that life in front of Him, we talk about Jesus during the day and we talk about him at night and, and he's the focus and whatever we're doing, we bring God back into the conversation and and we re- and the kids hear that and they see that and they watch our lives and they live it out and we read the, together, we read the Bible together and we get on our knees as a family and we pray together every night. And, and then it means something because you are first committed to the Lord yourself and we get our family together and every Sunday rolls around and say kids it's time to go to church we're excited about gathering with the body of Christ I know your life can get crazy and 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 what happens is our schedules get so full and we get so fragmented we're torn in so many different directions. And some of you are in here, you've got to work shift work and you can't be here every Sunday and I certainly understand that. And those times come and we go through those seasons in our life where, and, and, and there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of pressure that we are always under and always facing and uh, those things happen and so I understand that. But there, we're, there's also something else that has gone in America in the last several day, decades. It's what I call secularization of America. And so we've been trying to, uh, humanistic society's been trying to kick God out of America. And so there was a day when I grew up, when I was younger, and some of you may remember this day, that when Sunday was a special day. Yeah. And so all the stores shut down. Yeah. There were no shopping going on. There was none of that happening. We just knew that, It was Sunday was the day to worship the Lord. It was the day to come to church. It was was their Sabbath. It was our Sabbath day and everything else shut down. Now Now it's the biggest shopping day of the week. And so we do all our grocery shopping and all of our shopping for the week and we do all that on Sunday. And then there was a time when you couldn't buy anything to drink on a Sunday and the bars were closed and the liquor stores were closed and it all shut down. Not anymore. Sunday's like any other day. And there was a time when we were raising our kids that uh, there were no sports on Sunday. There were no activities on Sunday. And so now we sign our kids up for soccer and we sign our kids up for football or we put them in the ballet or we put them in gymnastics or whatever. And there are meets held all over the state on Sunday. And there are tournaments all over the place on Sunday. And what's happened is Sunday has become like any other day For our kids. Well, what happens is we we think our kid's going to be the next basketball LeBron James, and so we put him on this traveling team, and he travels all over the place every single Sunday, and we allow him to do that. But what we are saying, in effect, is that your sports are more important than our family worshiping together in the house of the Lord. And so we've made the priorities, and we Follow into the world system, and we get sucked into the culture, and we do just like we have everybody. Listen, there are very. I'm going to tell you, your little Johnny probably will not play pro basketball. <laughs> just probably won't happen. There are very few as the funnel gets smaller and smaller and makes it to that level. My uh, Mike, I had two boys. Chad and Jason, and I love sports, and so we were gonna try the Sertoma thing, and we put him in the Somerville football, and so they had to practice on Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night, and, uh, and then they played their games on Saturdays, and so Jason's not here, I don't think, but they weren't very good. Just tell him I said that. They just weren't that good, and they took after their father. I hate to say it, and, uh, but we told the coach, listen, Wednesday night's church night, and we go to church, and they got their youth group then and they meet with their teenagers then and they have their their, their Royal Rangers, their Michinettes, or whatever the kids are doing. And so... So either they play for a half an hour and we come and we'd pull them out and bring them to church or they didn't even go on Wednesday night. And, and you're right, there were times they didn't start the next football game because they weren't there at practice. And there were times that, but there were choices that we made along the way. And so we make those choices and, and they may not be making uh, millions of dollars on the football field, but they're serving the Lord and they love Jesus. And to me, you know, the writer says, what does the prophet? if you gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And we route our kids academically, we route them athletically, we route them, whole, and, and it's fine. that's fine, there's, there's good things. I love sports as much as the next guy, and we want them to excel and do well in school. There's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes we push that so hard, but we never talk about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who's gonna get us to heaven. Jesus is the one who will save us and forgive us and cleanse us. Jesus has got to be at the core and center of our life so we got to be careful this subtle suck in of society Uh, church is important it assists you with your kids he says in ephesians 4 that god's given gifts to the church to do certain things so all around you are people who are gifted and they are to do four things he says in ephesians 4 for the perfecting of the saints for the edifying of the body of Christ, for grounding us in the truth so you're not led away by every wind and wave of doctrine and that we might grow up together in the most holy faith. Listen, that's not gonna happen if you're at home on your own, going to the lake every Sunday, golfing every Sunday, going here, I'm I'm talking to the choir because you're here. So you guys are amazing, you're here. But we gotta be careful the subtle seep and direction away from the Lord of the center and, and, and being first in our lives. But let me take it a step further. But also the church at faith, right here, we cannot disciple your kids with two hours on a Sunday morning, or even maybe if you're involved in groups on some level, two hours on a Wednesday night. We can't take the parents' place. Two hours or four hours a week won't do it. It won't even cut it. So the other danger is we bring them all to church and we think they're gonna take my place and then we don't talk about Jesus until next Sunday morning and we may mention them on the way home from church which takes me to my second point which is simply this. We need to also teach the next generation about the Lord and so we've gotta be committed ourselves to that life of godliness and our family centered around Christ. Now we also have to talk about them and teach it to the next generation. Look at verse number seven. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, okay? Talk about them at, at home, not just on Sunday. You get that? And when you walk along the road together, and so you're walking together, and say, isn't it a beautiful day that God gave us today? And everything, he, he's the center of our conversation. And when you lie down, so at night before you go to bed, you're gonna talk about Jesus. You're gonna pray together. You're gonna read the Bible together. You're gonna, you're gonna teach them about the Lord. And when you get up, That pretty much covers the whole day, right? Teach the next generation. In the book of Judges, the next generation grew up not remembering the Lord. They were not intentionally talking about God in their homes, and they did not do this, and so it says in Judges 2.10, and that generation grew up not knowing or remembering the Lord. Listen, if the only time your kids connect with God is on Sunday morning at church, they begin to think Christianity is an event or an activity, not a relationship. Uh, you, you, this is, this is, you got to get this. This is so, so important. It is something I do on Sunday. It is a religious event. It is a religious activity. And they will see God in that way, not as the prime mover and shaker of every aspect of their lives. Because the only time he comes up is on Sunday morning and what we what they begin to do is in western mindset we begin to car compartmentalize our, our our life so i've got my work life and then i've got my church life and then I've got my play life and then I've got my financial life and I've got this life and so we've divided our life up into little pies or little segments instead of a holistic view which was the Eastern mentality that Christ is in everything, he is my all, he is my life, he affects everything that I do throughout the course of my week. He is not a Sunday only God. He is not put up on the shelf for the week until I come to church and I get him out and I dust him off and I walk in with my big smile. Now, now listen to me. If you do that with your kids and they view Jesus as an activity on Sunday and he's not internalized in their heart, what happens is when, he, when they grow up and go to college... And they're around a secular culture and a pagan influence and they're around that, that whole kind of environment and atmosphere. It is in college that many, many, many of our young people leave God and they leave the church and they leave the faith. Why? Why? because he's been something I did on Sunday and now I'm away from home, I'm away from that influence, I'm away from that ritual, I no longer have to do that ritual again because they saw it as a ritual, they saw it as something they had to do and now they don't have to do it anymore because they're so, so busy. And somewhere along the line, we lose church and we lose our faith and we fall away and we drop out. Why? Because they grew up because Christianity was a Sunday only experience. That's why in Deuteronomy, talk about him in your home. Talk about him in your home. Talk about him when you get up in the morning. Talk about him when you lie down at night. Talk about him throughout the day. Hmm. The generation of judges that grew up not knowing God didn't even know who they were. See, here, here's, the, here's the rub. If you don't know God, you don't understand your true identity. Because our identity is found in Christ, our identity is found in God. And when you know God, you know why you were made, why you are created. So God created you for kingdom purpose and potential, not just to go to work, make some money, buy some bread. To go to work the next day, make some money, and buy some bread, and do the same old, same old, over and over again. Now, let me take it to its logical conclusion. If you don't know God, you don't know your purpose. But also, if you don't know God, you have no sense of right and wrong. So, what happens in the book of Judges? There was a generation that grew up, they didn't know God, so what did they do? Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Moral relativism follows an absence of God where there is no God, there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute law, there is no right and wrong. You become a God to yourself. So if I say something's good, it's good. If I say it's bad, it's bad. That's not what the word of God says. So we wonder why our world, our America is spiraling out of control and everything has gotten so crazy, sexualized, uh, anger, everything, raging, division, strife, gossip, turmoil, messes all around us. Why? Because a generation is growing up not knowing God. On the other hand, if we'll plant those seeds in our children, in our teenagers, in our young people, if we'll live it at home in front of them, they'll grow up and they're the future hope for America and they can bring revival to our land. But it's got to start in the home. Mm. Healthy Families are born and raised up. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul writes Timothy. He's talking about his upbringing. And he mentions his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. And he says in verse 15, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He said from your earliest childhood you came to begin to know the, the word of God. And as you knew the word of God, your faith grew, and you eventually came to know the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, start when your kids are small. Get the Bible out. You know, if it's a picture storybook, start telling those amazing stories about David and Goliath, about Jonah and the whale, about the walls of Jericho, about those amazing, amazing stories. We get so hung up on superheroes, Superman and Batman and Spider-Man, and there's nothing wrong with those guys, but I'm telling you, the real superheroes are in the Word of God. And we got the richest stories, the richest book, the richest heritage, and you begin to instill that into their mind early. And then as they start getting a little bit older and they can read, begin to read the Bible together and take a version out they can understand and read that and then say, what do you think this means? What does this mean to you? What's your favorite verse in there? Let your kids begin to read the Bible back to you. You so they can read it themselves. And then take it a step further and even begin to memorize the word of God together and begin to take verses and say, this is our memory verse for the week and have your kids, just think if you did that every week of the year, 52 memory verses they would have in their heart and mind as they grow up. I don't know what it was when I was growing up, but my, my mom and dad would take me to church. We'd go Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning. We were, going, we were at church all the time. And, uh, but I think my Mike and I must have been fighting on the way there and back. And so my mom got tired. I said, okay, we're gonna memorize scripture on the way to church. And so not only would we go to church and spend an hour and a half, we'd memorize the Bible on the way there and on the way back. And so we started memorizing verse after verse after verse. But I still remember many of those scriptures today and what a source of strength. Hi, the word of God have I hidden in my heart. Hide it in the hearts of your kids and that generation. And that leads me to my third point. is simply this. Remember what the Lord has done. Not only you, you teach the word, but you remember what he's done. Uh, go back to Deuteronomy 6. Let's pick it up with verse 10. I'll read. I want to read a few more verses to you. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. So they were going to come into a land, they were going to displace the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Hittites, and they were going to take over their cities just by the power of God. He says, cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods you did not provide, wells that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. So they're gonna move into this land, this promised land that God has described to them and they will possess it. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Don't forget that every good blessing you got came from the Lord. And don't forget the Lord. And don't cut him out. Remember the Lord, what he did for you. There was an interesting pattern in the Old Testament that any time they would have like a real huge spiritual victory or a or, or battle they'd win or they'd kill, they'd kill the enemies or, or they had this divine encounter with God, often they would let, set up memorial stones. And in one case, they built an altar and called it Jehovah Shalom, God our peace. And another time, they won a great battle in, in the wilderness and they set up some stones and uh, built an altar and, and called it uh, Jehovah Uh, Tichcanu, the Lord my righteousness, or or the Lord our banner, who we fight under, or this or that. And so they had these names for God. They all were centered around these stone altars they were built. And it was the memorials. You're to remember. Every time you look on this, remember what God has done.
1: Well, there
0: there was uh, one case that they built memorial stones. It's in Joshua 4. Turn there, and if you don't have it, we'll put it on the screen. Look at Joshua chapter 4 and verse number 4. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. He said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Now how can they go in the middle of the Jordan? Well, God just stopped the waters from flowing. So they they walk out in the middle of this river, middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. So we're not talking little pebbles here or rocks. We're talking big stones. Get them on your shoulder and take them out. According to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, how many stones would there be then? 12, good, you guys are on today. Uh, to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you. Now notice, he didn't say in the future when you guys see these stones, remember me. Well, they, they walked through on dry ground. They didn't really need the rocks, got it? They didn't need the stones. But when your children see this pile of rocks, 12 rocks piled up, when your children ask you, what do you tell them? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when, uh, when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. What a powerful testimony. They're walking around with their kids and they say, daddy, daddy. Tell me about this pile of rocks right here. I know they didn't get there by themselves. They're piled up. Why are they there? Ah, oh, let me tell you about those stones. One day we walked in the river and the water stopped and God entered into the promised land. And this whole land of Israel you live in now is all because of the power of Almighty God. That's what those stones are all about. And the stories are passed down from generation to generation, often through memorial stones. Now, I read Judges 2. This generation rose up not knowing God. So somewhere along the line, they forgot to make their trip around Gilgal to see those 12 stones. It was no longer being told, no longer being talked about, and a new generation rises up not remembering the Lord. Now listen to me, I wanna show you the power of those stones. There was a man by the name of Eglon, Eglon, E-G-L-O-N. He is a king, he's a Moabite king, he's a fat dude and he has Amalekites with him and Ammonites with him, and they subdue Israel. The Bible says Israel sinned in the eyes of God, so the Moabites come in because they're no longer worshiping God, and they set up their idols, and they bring Israel back into captivity. And the Bible says for 18 years, Iglon ruled over Israel, the Israelites. Now, if you have a king over you who's ruling over you, one of the things you had to do as people is bring him money or bring him tribute. And so you would bring money to him on a regular basis that whatever you made in your fields, whatever crops you had, whatever you grew, whatever you did, you had to take that money and give it to your ruling king. So in effect, the Israelites are in total slavery. So the Bible said a man by the name of Ehud, E-H-U-D, he's a lefty. And the Bible makes sure they called him a lefty because lefties were kind of like nobodies back then. If you're a lefty, how many lefties are in the house? Raise your left hand. Oh, I see some right hands go. I fooled you. Uh, lefties in here. And so uh, if you were a lefty, that was kind of a, a way to look down on somebody. And then it goes on to say he was also the tribe of Benjamin, which was the least of all the tribes, and they're the ones that got in all this trouble in the book of Judges later. And so... Ehud says, I'm tired of being ruled over by these Moabites. And it says he took a little sword out about 18 inches long and he sharpened both sides of the blade. You can read all this in Judges chapter three. And he's gonna go in and he's gonna kill this king. It's interesting. He goes in to pay tribute. He brings his money. Here's my money, king. He's got this dagger right here beside him. He's gonna stab him. But he chickens out. and He can't do it. The Bible says he left And it says, when he went by the stones at Gilgal. Now, some of your translations won't say that. It'll say rock quarries or something else. But by identifying Gilgal and specifically talking about the stones, he's talking about that rock pile they set up when the generation before him crossed the Jordan River. And when he saw the stones, it says he turned and he went back. And he goes in, he gets that king all by himself in the room, says, come here, buddy, i got a secret to tell you. As soon as he leans over to tell him a secret, he takes his left hand, daggers right here, pulls it out, bam, right in his gut. This dude is so fat, the fat surrounded the blade. I mean, it, it just says 18 inches, and so he, know he's, he's bigger than that and so it surrounds his body, he falls dead. The dude flees out the back, he runs, but when the Israelites saw what this guy had the courage to do, that the whole army raised up, and they came in, and they got rid of the Moabites, and the Amalekites, and the Ammonites, and and once again, Israel has freedom and peace in the land. Why did the guy have the courage to do that? Because he saw the stones. And when he saw the stones, he remembered, you know what, if God God opened up the Jordan River, if God brought the walls of Jericho down, if God helped us to take the promised land, if God helped us to take city after city after city, I serve a powerful, almighty God. God will be with me. And he brought deliverance as a judge to the nation of Israel, all because he saw the stones. Stones are critical. Now, what's that have to do with us? Listen, you guys aren't setting rock piles up in your backyard unless you're nuts. But what I'm saying is, the Bible says in first Peter chapter two, you are living stones. So we are the memorials, we are the testimonies, we are the stories, it's our life, it's what God did for me. I was in slavery, I was bound, I was lost, but God set me free, God gave me life. God provided for me when my money ran out. God took care of me every step of the way. We are those living stones. But it does no good unless you tell the stories. Tell the stories. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what he means to you. Talk about his mercy and grace. Talk about how he healed your body. Talk about Jesus. And then when those kids go off to college and someone says, let's go party tonight. Let's go get high tonight. Let's go have some sex tonight. They say, hey, whoa, 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 wait wait a minute. There's a better way. I know Jesus Christ. I'm not turning away. He's my Lord and Savior. And they'll stand for him wherever they're at. Why? Because you built that foundation in their hearts and lives while they were growing up. Teach your children, be committed yourself first. Teach them the law of the Lord. Teach them the word of God, and then remember, tell them the stories of what Jesus did for you. Hmm. Mmm. Mm. Mm. Wow. How do we practically do some of these things? First of all, parents, moms and dad, make sure your priorities are in order is Christ really first today? Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to some of you about where you're at and what you're doing and what's going on and how you've prioritized the most important things in your lives. Are you living in obedience to the Lord and to his word, or have you grown complacent in your faith and in your life and in your walk? If you are, you can almost guarantee spiritual shipwreck for the next generation. And number 2, spend time with your children reading the Bible. Praying together, talking about Jesus Christ on a regular basis. Get the word of God in there. There's a verse, and I close with this, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child, in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from you. That word for train... Was it was a word that was used in the Hebrew culture? They would take a date and they would crush it, and that date would be very sweet. They even called dates honey in the in the New Testament. So many times we talk about honey in the New Testament we're talking about dates, not bee honey, and it was a date honey. And they would crush that, and that sweet taste would create a desire for that child to begin to suck. And so then they would begin to nurse and wean that child all through just kind of crushing that little date honey. And so that's what the word train means. What we do is we can't save our kids. You can't, they've got to come to a point in their own life where they're gonna surrender their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Everybody comes in the very same way. We're saved by grace through faith. But what we can do is create a, a thirst or a taste for God. And it says when they're old, they won't depart from it. Statistics show that if you'll teach Christ at home with your family, they are more likely to serve the Lord as adults. But even if they do wander away, and we have some case studies for this, uh, the book of uh, Luke 15 tells about a prodigal son. Good home, good father, but he took the inheritance, he left the home, he went away into riotous living, and wild, crazy living, did all kinds of stuff. No, he didn't learn that from his daddy. But one day he came back and the dad was waiting and even if you have a prodigal that's out there somewhere and not serving the Lord we can believe and pray and stand on God's word yes God I taught them I trained them I did all I could you bring them back mighty God you save them you get a hold of their life and if it needs, it's a pig pen that's needed send them in a pig pen but I God I want them to know you more than anything else in their life and they will come back pray for our kids pray for our kids be that example